If you'd like to open up your Bibles this morning to uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, that's where we'll be spending our time. But as you're turning there, I just want to um, welcome Peter and Joy Barson. Peter is going to be chairing the meeting, uh, the congregational meeting, following the service this morning. Um, and that meeting is for approving my resignation. So make sure you come along to it and approve it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you and praise you for this passage that um, is a passage that reminds us of your power, of our inability. It reminds us of what a great God you are. It reminds us of how powerful uh, you are working out of your love for your people. We ask, even as Paul asks in this letter, we ask that you will open up our hearts and our minds that we might understand the things that are here in this passage this morning that will bring encouragement to us, that will help us to understand a little bit more of the salvation that you have worked for us, that will help us to grow that little bit more in our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. Father, we ask that you will be with us. We ask that you will um, open up our hearts and minds that we might uh, give you honor and glory for all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just very quickly reviewing where we were, where, what we did last week, we started a series in Ephesians, and last week we looked at Ephesians uh, chapter 1, the first 14 verses, and we saw some things in it, like um, the fact that God lavished spiritual blessings on us beyond measure, that he chose us in Christ, bef uh, in Christ before the creation of the world, that love the, the, the love of God predestined us to be adopted as his sons and that his plan for us is um, that we be set apart and that we grow in holiness and that we're set apart for God. Uh, it talked about redemption, that is forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, and all of these things are kind of coming under the, the, uh, uh, the rubric of spiritual blessings, that he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with all these spiritual blessings, it went on to talk about how when we come to faith, when we hear the gospel, the word of salvation, and we come to faith, we are sealed uh, by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit becomes the guarantor of our inheritance, um, our full inheritance of redemption, which is, even though it has started, it is yet to come in the future, our full inheritance um, of redemption, and it's expressed in verse 10, in chapter 1 of verse 10, as that time when God brings all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So the first 10, 15 verses of Ephesians are just a continual, uh, and, and Paul does it, it's a continual um, uh, revealing of God's salvation, but also it brings Paul to praise God. He does that. He starts out 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about praising uh, God's glorious grace in verse 6. And he talks about that we might be for the praise of God's glory in verse 12. And then he refers again to the praise of his glory in verse 14. So what's happening in Ephesians chapter 1, it is an explanation of our salvation, but it's also Paul responding to the wonders of that salvation by praising God as he goes. And that really kind of continues in what we're looking at this morning. He goes from, he goes from praising God several times in those first uh, 10 verses or so to thanking God, to giving God thanks for the Ephesians and for their response to the gospel, for their, their faith and for their love for the saints. And then he goes from, uh, from uh, thanking God to praying. That's the next thing that happens. He goes from, from praising God to thanking God to praying. And he prays for the Ephesians. And we'll look at that a little bit more as we go down. But the important thing, I guess, is just that we see that that Paul, as he's writing this, his worship continues. He continues to worship God in praising God, in thanksgiving, and in prayer as he opens up this first, what we would call the first chapter of Ephesians. I'd like us to look just for a couple of moments at this thanksgiving and prayer. So we're going to concentrate on verse 15. So if you want to look at verse 15 um, and following, that's where we'll be going the next uh, few minutes. And um, verse 15 uh, starts out, For this reason, uh, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, uh, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's the content of his prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Further, uh, verse 18, this is for, I don't know what your versions say, but I'm shortening it a little bit down to be a little bit more uh, accurate um, in terms of um, the original. Um, the, the Verse 18, the second part of his prayer is that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. So the first thing he prays for is that God the Father would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And the reason that he's asking them to give, asking God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation is so that you may know him better, that you may know your Father in heaven better, that you may know Christ better. That's the purpose of that prayer. And it's not, it's, it's not that Paul is asking God um, to give them more content or more, uh, more revelation of who Jesus is. Um, in terms of adding to who Jesus is and what he has done, but he's asking God to help them to understand who he is. Paul is, uh, is an apostle who is revealing who, who Christ is. And if you look at the New Testament, you'll see that the New Testament continues to do that. There are different parts of the New Testament that help us to know who Christ is, who he is and what he's done. It wasn't all done just in one book, in one gospel or one letter, um, it, it takes a whole New Testament to help us to understand who Christ is. 
And Paul is not praying for them that they will somehow be able to find out something about Jesus apart from the New Testament. He's praying for them that that God will give them the Spirit so that they will understand who Christ is as he is revealed by uh, the uh, New Testament writers, by the uh, writings in the New Testament. And that's critical. Uh, And we understand that now. We understand it in a way that they probably didn't quite understand it back then. But we have a New Testament. And uh, we understand that if you're going to teach me about Jesus or I'm going to teach you about Jesus, that this is where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the New Testament. And you have the right to uh, challenge or or look at or question what I might be saying if I bring some other teaching about Jesus to you then you have the right to question that because you've got the word of God here. And so what the way that we would look at this now is that what we want is we want the spirit of revelation so that we will come to know Christ better, Christ who is revealed in the New Testament, so that we would come to know um, more deeply uh, what his grace is, what his love is. Uh, a little bit further over in Ephesians, Paul prays for um, the same kind of thing. He prays that God will open their eyes so that they will understand the love of Christ. Because this love of Christ is without measure. It goes on and on. And the way that we understand that is we live our lives as Christians. We come to understand the grace of God more and more as time and life goes on. And we come to know Christ more deeply It's not that we have to add something that's not there in the New Testament about Jesus, but we need to have revealed to us who he is so that we understand him more and more. So that's the goal of this revelation. So there's two goals here, really. One is that, that you may know him better, that you may know God as your father and his son better. And then the second part of the prayer is that your, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. There's actually three parts to this prayer, but the second one is that you may know, know the hope. What hope do you have in life? Um, things seem kind of miserable right now. Plus, it's overcast, right? You get up in the morning and it's overcast and it kind of changes the way you feel about things. And if it was raining, we could thank God for the rain, but at the same time, we kind of want to go home and cuddle around a fire or something warm because it's a rainy gray day. But the hope that we have goes, goes far beyond the, uh, the effects that the weather might have on us. And Paul prays that we would know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. This is, tra- this is interpreted a couple of different ways. Number one, that um, God is our inheritance. That's one way it's uh, interpreted. The other is that we are actually God's inheritance. And both, both have uh, good people arguing both points. But here it says the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So the way that this has been um, translated here kind of gives you the idea that we are God's inheritance. We are God's inheritance. And and, um, and this is something that brings honor to God. It brings pleasure to God. It brings joy to God. If you can talk about those things, as God is having those kinds of things. Certainly, we've heard already uh, that 
God has planned this salvation according to his good pleasure and will. It is a pleasure for God that you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, it brings pleasure to God. And um, uh, Paul is saying here that we need to know that hope, that we need to have the Spirit of God um, revealing to us the hope um, that we have, the hope to which we have been called, the riches of, of God's glorious inheritance. And these things, these things uh, here in chapter 1 of Ephesians are what we might, we might read them and say, oh, this is a real heavy-duty spiritual passage, uh, spiritual uh, passage of, uh, of the Bible. Um, but we need to remember that this is basic this is basic Christianity. This is the introduction of a letter that was written in the first century to Christians like us. Different culture, but nonetheless, Christians like us. This was for them, for them to understand, for them to take hope in, for them to see what God is doing. Added to that, and you can pick it up as you're reading through Ephesians, is the fact that, that you've got a church with, uh, or churches and, uh, with Jews and Gentiles, and how does that work out? How does Jew and Gentile work out? Um, and the uh, Gentiles, uh, the, the relationship between the Jew and Gentile would have, uh, would have brought tension in churches where, uh, from the Jewish perspective, the Gentiles were always considered to be uh, second class, in a sense, second class citizens. People who would, weren't supposed to inherit salvation, but they were supposed to inherit judgment the judgment of God. And here they are now being included in Christ. And some of the things here are specifically to help the Gentiles um, feel more at home, maybe, uh, to know that they are at home, to know that they are on equal standing with, with, the, with the Jews in terms of being in, incorporated in Christ, uh, being included in Christ. So, and then the... the so the, the hope, he's, ask, he's praying that God will help them to know God better, that, that uh, the Spirit will help them to know the hope to which they are called. And then lastly in verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So the third thing that he prays for, that he doesn't just assume that Christians understand the power of God, he prays for them that they will understand God's great power. And he, my translation says his incom incomparably great power. And um, so what's happening here, as we get into part, the second part now, it really begins to develop what that power is. So he's, uh, Paul is praying that they will come to understand God's incomparably great power for us who believe, those who believe, who are sealed in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God's personal guarantor of your redemption. And so after he mentions that in his incomparably great power for us who believe, then we'll go into the second half of verse 19, the next section, that talks about that power. So he prays that they will understand that power, and then Paul goes on to explain it to them more, to explain what that power is. So I'm going to read 19, uh, 19, the second half. of. In my version, it's the second half of 19, verse 19. So he begins, That power 
is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I just want to slow down for a few minutes and go through some of these things. First of all, what Paul is saying here is that he's praying that the Ephesians will come to understand the incomparably great power for us who believe. That's for us. That's for you and I. If we're believers, God has, has this great power that has worked in us. It has worked a salvation that we can be included in, that we are included in when we come to faith in Christ. And then he doesn't just leave it there. He says, this is what the power is like. This is what his power is like. And what he's trying to do here is not say uh, his power is kind of like this power. Uh, he's not saying this power is like it in certain ways, but in other ways it's unlike it. What Paul is doing is he's drawing a direct line from the power that uh, God has uh, revealed in Christ, in our salvation, that Paul is saying we need to pray that we will understand this power, that the Spirit of God will reveal this to us. He's drawing a straight line from there to the power is like this. This is the same kind of power. This is where we have seen it operating already. This is where we've seen the power of God. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Now, I know that there are times, probably uh, often during the day, where you're not thinking uh, of this kind of power being active in your life. But it is, if you're a Christian. Um, you're not necessarily thinking, oh, I'm walking around today and I know the power of God that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. No, you might be thinking more of how am I going to pay this bill? Or how am I going to um, get to the to the uh, grocery store um, because um, I'm sick and I can't get there and I'm going to call someone to go for me or, or whatever it is. But nonetheless, it is. This is the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand. That is the power that is at work in us who are Christians, who are believers. As he says here, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. It is for us. It is for you. It is already active. It is already going. Whether we see it or not, you, if you're a Christian, you have already been um, raised from the dead in Christ. You have already been raised to life. That's not the physical one. That's coming later. But he has already given you new life. He has given you new birth. And he has done that with the same power 
that He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. He has sealed you by His Spirit. Not only has He given you new life, He has said in this new life, I guarantee that you will have the full redemption of sons and daughters of God. Yet in the future, that's the hope that He's called us to. But it's the same power. So we look to see the power that God exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. And that's the power that is at work in us. And the second part of that is seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That's why we can, it can, uh, the, the Bible says that we have been seated with Christ, that we have been raised with Christ. That's the power of God to do that. And that's the power that is at work in us. And Jesus has been raised, as it says here, uh, raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And then the rest, verse 21 and 22 and 23, is really a further explanation of uh, how that power uh, raised Jesus and what it did. Uh, let's read it. So the power uh, that, that God exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, yes, it was like a coronation, we call it that. We call it that. We call it uh, his being raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father. But here the description goes a little bit further. Uh, Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority. That's all earthly or heavenly. All rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. Not only in the present age, that's the one that we live, but also in the one to come. So whatever power, whatever authority there is in this world that we look at, whether it's state power, national power, or whether we might throw in there angelic power, uh, Christ has been raised far above all of that authority and power, and he is the one who is reigning. He is the one who is ruling. He is the one who is bringing this world under his subjection as we are reminded uh, back in uh, verse 10, um, uh, chapter 1, verse 10. Let me find that and read it. I'm not going to be able to find it. Chapter 1, verse 10. These, uh, these things are to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's where we are now. That's what is, that's what is working out to a, a predetermined conclusion that the world will come under the world, everything, the world, invisible, visible, will come under the headship of Christ. God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church has such an incredible place in this, in this working out of this redemption in this life. The church is the body of Christ, and he fills the church, and he dwells, his presence is in the church. Now, I had the uh, unpleasant experience this week of watching a video of how uh, I'll call them Christians. I think that's fair. 
of how many Christians these days are uh, kind of taking a little bit of a trajectory on the power of God. It's important for us to understand the power of God. It's also important for us to understand the limits of the power of God. And this was a worship service I was watching on a video. And the, um, the Christians who were putting on this worship service were doing it in such a way as to teach what the power of God is. And they, say the, they were saying the power of God enables us to bind the spirits. It enables us to have power over this and power over that. And they had actually gone to the point, which I thought was very sad, that um, uh, they were comparing the power of Christ with the power of the wizard in the Lord of the Rings. And so the Lord of the Rings actually came and enveloped the power of Christ. So during the worship service, there was someone who came up on the stage of the worship service in a cape with a big... Uh, staff and pounded the staff and you probably if you've seen the Lord of the Rings remember where uh, Gandalf um, takes his staff and he whacks it down and forbids this big uh, demon from passing and he says you shall not pass so this whole group of people up on worshiping God on, on the uh, stage are pounding this staff while one of them is uh, in a cape and they're repeating that you shall not pass. And, they're, and what they're doing is they're saying finally that they are going to stop the demon of, no, it was the spirit, excuse me, the spirit of racism. They're going to stop the spirit of racism by going through this uh, stage, stage thing on, up and during the worship service. Pathetic. It's not Christianity. It's not what we should be understand. We should be understanding when we are when we are reading about the power of God, the power of God, God, the God of love, out of love, has moved to secure a people for Himself at the end of the age, to have eternal life, to inherit eternal life, and and uh, and we are to benefit from the power of God, but not trying to copy the power of God or not trying to put it into some kind of uh, mythical movie mode where we, um, where we think we have the power over this or the power over that. God's power is a power which saves and redeems and brings about his body, the church, where he dwells in his fullness. Now the last section that I want us to look at just for the next few minutes has to do with um, the next 10 verses. This is love in action. This is the power of love. Uh, I think it's important for us to get the point that when we talk about love, uh, for Christians, we're talking about God is love. It's not like God is here, and then there's this thing over here called love, and then whenever we talk about love, we're talking about that, and it doesn't matter whether or not we're talking about God who is love or the love of God. Um, that we just, you know, we have all kinds of songs that talk about love and all that stuff. And I mean, I know that it's legitimate to talk about those things, but for the Christian, um, we, we don't separate love from God in that sense. God is love. Look at, um, uh, look at I'm just going to read, read the next few verses. Um, 
and another thing that's happening here is that it is becoming clearer, or as Paul goes on, that salvation is from God. It's of God. He's the one who works our salvation. We, on the other hand, Paul says, what are you guys like? Here's what God's like. Here's what he's done. Verses, the whole of chapter 1. Here's what his power is like. And he says, as for you, chapter 2, verse 1, as for you, this is what you are like. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature children of wrath. Some of your versions say nature, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Some of your, some of your versions say um, objects of wrath. But li literally, it's children. We're children of wrath. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, and here's the power of his love. Uh, we looked at it before in terms of power, but here's what happens. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. So love is there working when, when we are given new birth. When we come to faith in Christ, the power of God that is at work in us to give us this new life and to raise us up with Christ into the heavenlies is, if I can put it this way, it's motivated by love. But I don't mean a love that's separate from God. I mean God who is love. He is the one who does this. That's what, that, that's what God has done. God has raised us up. We, it says, I won't spend any time on the first few verses because in the last several weeks we spent quite a bit of time looking at those verses in particular for over several weeks. Verses, the first three verses or so. But verse 4, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. That's power. That's the power of God to make us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. That means that we were dead spiritually. We've got nothing. We've got no breath. We're spiritually dead. And then that well-known verse, it is by grace you have been saved. The grace is brought in contrast to the fact that we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that we have been given new life. We've been made alive by Christ, by the power of God, because of his love for us. Verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's power. That's power that we don't know. That's power I mean, that we're supposed to know. We're supposed to grow in it. It's power that we can't come up with. It's power that is beyond nuclear explosions. It's power that is beyond anything that humans can come up with, that God has taken a race of people who are dead in their sin, and he has brought new life to them. Same kind of power as was operating in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. But now it's a redemptive power. It's a power to bring and give new life to people who are described here as dead in our transgressions. 
And not only does he make us alive, as, just as he did with Christ, God raised us up with Christ. His power was exerted in raising Christ and seating Christ with him at his right hand. And so his power is, exerting in, is exerted in raising us up with Christ and seating us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then that well-known verse, which we should all have memorized. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If you've thought about boasting in your salvation because you've, had, you've said something like, you know, God did a really great thing. He did a really great thing in giving me his son, uh, but I'm so glad I, I chose him. I'm so glad that out of my willpower and my, my uh, spiritual savvy, uh, I was able to kind of choose Christ instead of rejecting him. Uh, what's that going to get you? It's going to get you boasting. And the whole point here is that you've got nothing to boast about except Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. He has worked on us. He has shaped us. He has given us new life. He has given us new birth. He has raised us up with his son. He has forgiven us our, our sins. Go back and read chapter 1, and you'll see everything that he has done. We are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Of course, good works are part of being a Christian, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We looked at that just a little bit last week. God is rich in mercy, and his love is great and rich and powerful and plentiful. Our salvation is in Christ. It is in Christ by grace, through faith, not by works. None of us can boast. We are God's handiwork, and we are created in Christ Jesus to, uh, to be holy and blameless and to do good works. If you get the idea that Paul is saying, you know, there's not much on our part to offer here, and it all comes from God, that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying over the course of this chapter and a half. That God alone may be glorified in our salvation, and that's what Paul does right on through the first 14 verses. He's praising God for his salvation that he's given to us. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. Paul has prayed that we would understand by his spirit these things of God. And in conclusion, I just want to read a passage out of Isaiah 55. This is this, Isaiah 55 is this wonderful invitation. It's an invitation to people who do not know God. It's an invitation to come to God that that there, there is no cost. In other words, you can't earn and buy your salvation. And it says that for the first uh, several verses. And then later on down it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. And let me just add a little editorial thing there. Not editorial, but just comment. God is near when, when you're reading his word when you're singing his word, when his word is preached, when you hear the gospel, 
God is near. It says, call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. And the assumption now before we get to the next verse is that that's not, that's not like us. We are not full of mercy. And we don't freely pardon when people wrong us. We go in other directions. And so the thought comes, how can God do that? How is it that God does that? And so the next verse says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's salvation His salvation in Christ is higher than the way we think. And it needs to be revealed to us by his spirit, through his word, in Christ. He is our savior. He is the one who is full of mercy. God is the one whose love is powerful and active and reaches down and redeems us and brings us up from children of wrath to his children. And I hope that you are trusting in him. That's how you get that. You have to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for your son. And we thank you for this incredible salvation that is so incredible by human standards and human wisdom that we, that we would ask you to reveal um, to us by your spirit the love of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God. Help us to understand these immeasurably, the immeasurable power that you, that you have exerted in Christ and which is for us who believe. Father, we thank you and praise you uh, that salvation is by grace through faith. It is not by works or righteous things that we have done. There is no room for boasting. But we thank you and praise you for for such a, a wonderful and incredible salvation that takes us from death to life that is as yet for us unimaginable. And we pray these things for Jesus' honor and glory. Amen.